Well, we are continuing in chapter 22 of religious worship and the Sabbath day. Last week, we discussed two uh, incredibly important principles of, of biblical and reformed worship. Um, I, I could have probably camped out on, on the topic of uh, the spirituality of worship for, for a lot longer. It really captured my soul. Um, in particular, there's a really, really good, it's not a book, it's a treatise or a discourse by Stephen Sharnock. Um, Stephen Sharnock wrote a ton of discourses, like essays, um, on the spiritual nature of worship. And, oh, it was just so good. It was so challenging, personally. Um, but last week, we looked at the, the simplicity of worship and the spirituality of worship. These two reinforce one another. We've, we keep things uh, simple in worship to keep the focus on what is spiritual, because that's what God is truly after. That is the worship that is truly pleasing to Him. This challenges us to get out of our flesh and to worship in the Spirit, because to the flesh, simple worship is boring. The flesh wants to be entertained, right? The simplicity focuses or forces us then to worship in the power and enabling of the Spirit. We saw that the pulpit that is truly pleasing to God is not necessarily the one that is beautiful and ornate, although there's not necessarily anything wrong with a design on a pulpit per se. Yet the pulpit which pleases the Lord is the one that is faithful to the Word of Christ and the glory of God, where the Word of God is purely preached. That is what God truly desires to come from a pulpit. That's a precious pulpit in the eyes of the Lord. Well, having discussed those things, what I'd like us to do today is finally turn to consider the elements of worship that are mentioned in chapter 22, um, mostly in paragraph 5 of the Confession. So if you have your, your confession, open up to chapter 22, paragraph 5. Now, I'm only going to cover the elements mentioned here in the confession. If you remember, I said a few weeks ago that the confession nowhere intends to give us an order of service or an exhaustive list um, of all the elements that you might find in a worship service. Rather, it's comprehensive, but, but not exhaustive, Okay. For example, there's no mention of a pastoral benediction, a parting blessing given by the minister, and yet I don't know that there would be any Reformed or Puritan church or Baptist church that would not do that, right, while holding to the confession. Um, <clears throat> so when we come here and we don't see a liturgy, um, don't be upset because that's kind of asking the confession to do something that the authors never set out to do. They're, they're painting with broad brushstrokes here. You want to remember that uh, the real nuts and bolts of a worship service, um, if we consider the Westminster Confession, uh, those were actually written by the Westminster Assembly in a book, in a document called Directory for Public Worship. Um, and though we don't formally subscribe to that, there's a lot of really good things uh, in that directory uh, that's really good. For example, let me just give you a kind of flavor of the kind of things you will find in it, and you can find these for free online. <clears throat> and they're, they're very good. Some of them are kind of funny, too. <clears throat> Let all enter the assembly, not irreverently, but in a grave and seemly manner, taking their seats or places without adoration, 
or bowing themselves towards one place or another. Now, that last part is dealing with an old Roman Catholic custom that once you go in before the altar, you bow, right? And so perhaps there were some, maybe in some of the country areas, who still kind of had more of those superstitions of Rome, and it's saying, no, no, don't do that. It says, the congregation being assembled, the minister, after solemn calling on them to worshiping the great name of God, is to begin with prayer. So look at that. You already see things in our own order of service. There's a call to worship, right? We take our call from Scripture, um, but it is a call to worship. And then there's a prayer. We call it the prayer of invocation. We're asking for the Lord's blessing and enabling uh, to worship Him, right? So all that to say, uh, that is really the kind of place where if you're more interested in the, the, what I call the nuts and bolts of a worship service, it's going to be in those things. Um, the confession doesn't really set out to give us those things per se, um, but it's, it's painting with broad brushstrokes. So let's, let's read paragraph 5. We'll read it through one time, and then we'll walk through it. It says, The reading of the Scriptures, preaching and hearing the Word of God, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, as also the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper are all parts of religious worship of God to be performed in obedience to Him, with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. Excuse me, godly fear. Moreover, solemn humiliation, or humbling of yourself, with fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions ought to be used in a holy and religious manner. <clears throat> well, let's kind of analyze these elements. Let's see if we can maybe put them in a few categories and, and see what we can kind of extract out of them. The first way I'd like to look at them is uh, with the term, it's a phrase, but it's, it's categories, of word and sacrament. Word and sacrament. You guys ever heard of those two things going together? Word and sacrament. I had never really heard that all that much until I went to seminary and some of my um, uh, Presbyterian or maybe Dutch, Dutch Reformed brothers, um, when they got called to gospel ministry, they, they said, I'm now a minister of word and sacrament, okay? Word and sacrament um, are typically the way that the Reformed, and even the Lutherans, I think, spoke of what we call the means of grace, the means of grace. They typically said that the means of grace, the, the vehicles, if you will, by which we receive God's grace are God's word and his sacraments. Indeed, in many ways, we can say that what we see in the list of elements given in paragraph 5, that's one way we could break it all down, right? Word and sacrament. <clears throat> it starts off explicitly by describing the word, the reading of scriptures, preaching and hearing the word of God. That's obviously the word, right? Furthermore, we could include what is next said in the broader category of the word as well, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. That's actually a quote from Colossians 3.16, and in the context, they are singing, but they are also singing the word of God. It's what's being sung. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. So in a certain sense, we could even include singing, right, of songs that are either explicitly Scripture from the Psalms or those that are, are taken from Scripture in their content. Um, even that falls under the ministry of the Word to, to some degree in a very, very broad sense. Furthermore, if we wanted to, we could even include prayer in this. Um, we are to pray according to God's Word, right? If, if you remember, we saw with William Gouge, um, he says that prayer is simply the promise of God in reverse. So we pray according to God's revealed will, and sometimes we even explicitly pray the Scriptures back to God, saying His promises to Him. All of those things fall under the Word. Next after these, it mentions the sacraments. It says, as also the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, our confession of faith does not use the term sacrament, while the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declaration of the Congregationalists does use that term. So is that significant? Some, I think, have drawn too much from this personally. Uh, I, I think some have argued that maybe either, either against the Baptists or maybe Baptists themselves have argued that the original, the early Baptists didn't use the term sacrament, maybe because it wasn't scriptural, or maybe because they had a different theology from the, the other Reformed as far as the sacraments go in terms of them being a means of grace. Sometimes you'll hear Pado-Baptists, I think, make too much out of this, um, they will say, well, you know, if you read the confession, it, it doesn't call it a sacrament. It says it's, it's an ordinance, right? An ordinance just means a command or something that God has instituted, right? And then they'll, they'll go from that to say, and you know, they think only believers can be baptized and, and stuff. And so it's, it's really all, with Baptists, it's not about grace. It's really all about you and your own confession instead of looking to Christ. And it's like, okay. I could say all the same things about you in terms of the supper, right? Um, but that's not fair, first of all. We, don't, we do see the sacraments as a means of grace. Um, in fact, if you consider the Lord's Supper in particular in the confession, it's very clear that we receive grace by faith in the Lord's Supper. It's not a mere memorial, as some have called it. It says in chapter 30, paragraph 7, worthy receivers receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death, the body and the blood of Christ being then not corporally, not bodily or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. That's, that's a very Calvinistic reform view of the sacraments as a means of grace, right? So I, I, that's not a fair argument against us that we, we use the term ordinance, because we don't see them as a means of grace. Furthermore, you could even say the same thing of uh, baptism. There's a very interesting book that came out just this year, I think, by the Baptist historian Michael Haken. It's titled, Amidst Us, Our Beloved Stands, and the subtitle is Recovering Sacrament in the Baptist Tradition. And he shows how historically, uh, no, Baptists have seen even, even baptism as a means of grace. Um, <clears throat> there's even a sense in which we can say the waters of baptism wash away sin. You might go, whoa, that sounds Roman Catholic, right? Well, no, that's a, 
pretty typical Reformed way of sometimes speaking of baptism. Now, we don't mean that the waters of baptism wash away sins of themselves. Rather, we mean by faith in Christ, which we look to who washes away sins, which baptism represents, right? That, that washes away sins. It's truly Christ. Um, and yet, Baptists have even spoken that way as well. That's not, that's not really fair. Furthermore, the particular Baptists did use the term sacrament in their other writings fairly regularly. Uh, I did a brief survey for this Sunday school, and I was able to find that at least Benjamin Keach, William Kiffin, Hercules Collins all use the term sacrament in some of their writings, and they're not like averse to the term. We might ask, well, then why does the confession use that term? Uh, and why does it say ordinances? I think we should keep two things in mind. First of all, from what I have read of sources during that, this time, Congregationalists, uh, even broadly Puritans in general, they use the term ordinance all the time, even for the supper. In fact, we'll see that today um, in, the, in the Lord's Supper. Uh, we'll see that where a Presbyterian sometimes refers to the Lord's Supper as an ordinance of God, right? And really, the term ordinance comes really from the regulative principle. This is an ordinance. God commanded it. It's ordered by God, right? And so sometimes even Puritans will speak that way. The second thing we have to remember is that our confession of faith, the Baptist adaptation of the Westminster Confession, was not produced by committee. The Westminster Confession was produced by the Westminster Assembly. The Savoy Declaration was reworked at the Savoy Synod, or General Assembly. Ours wasn't. Rather, it was, adopt, or it, was, it was adapted by one person, and I don't even know if we're entirely sure who that person was. It was possibly first adopted in a local church and that it spread among the other Baptists, so much so that by the 1689 General Assembly, it was approved by all. Now, before that, in 1689, the Baptists couldn't meet to have a General Assembly and, and, and maybe meet to have a synod and do those things. They do it in 1689 because there's finally some civil liberty given to them. In fact, it's, I think it's important to remember um, that going up to 1689, the Baptists were severely persecuted. In fact, just a few years earlier, some famous Baptist pastors died in prison, right? Thomas DeLon was a, favorite one, a famous one. Um, he missed the 1689 assembly by about four years. He died in Newgate Prison right? So it was written by one person and then adopted by all. Because of that, it may just simply mean that this was a stylistic choice of the other author. Because the other terminology is kind of interchangeable, it was just agreed to by all, and I don't think we should read too much into it, okay? All that to say, we can still speak of word and sacrament as Baptists, and we should, and in a certain sense, that's one of the, the ways to look at the elements here in paragraph 5. Perhaps another way to look at the elements is to see all of them in some way or another as extensions of the Word of God. I think that's very true. The Word of God is really the foundation of everything we do in worship, even the sacraments, right? You know, as we've seen, when we sing... 
That's an expression of the Word of God. We're singing the Word of, the, the word of Christ richly dwelling in us, right? When we pray, we are praying according to the Word of God, and we're often very much actually praying Scripture to God, right? Well, with the sacraments, we speak of them as visible words, the Word of God, but made visible. Furthermore, when the sacraments are administered, they're never to be administered apart from the Word of God. That was a huge no-no for the Reformed. Why? Well, because the Romanists had more or less pushed the Word of God out, um, out of the Mass. I won't even call it a service, out of the Mass. It was all focused on the Supper, right? And yet there was never any kind of word given to explain it. There was kind of a general sense, this is the body and blood of Christ, um, maybe among the laity. But even then, a lot of that stuff would just be said in Latin, right? There was a lot of ignorance. The word of God was divorced from the sacraments. By contrast to this, the Reformed spoke of the sacramental word the sacramental word, or even the consionative, I think it's consionative word, meaning the preached word to explain the sacraments, and then even the words of institution are to be given. You know, even when Christ instituted the supper, he didn't just give out bread and wine and say, do this in remembrance of me. He said, this is my body, right? This is my blood. There's an explication by the word to explain what the signs point to. Turretin says, no instituted sign, such as the sacraments are, can be without a spoken word. Instituted signs of themselves are indeterminate in meaning, but are determined by the words with which they are instituted. Now, words that are not understood determine nothing. Therefore, since the sacramental words determine and words signifying nothing determine nothing, they cannot be sacramental words which are not, un which are not understood and thus not pronounced, right? So he's saying the word of God is what gives meaning. It helps us to see the sign. It's not just a bare sign. It's a sign that is interpreted. Otherwise, it, it's not a sign at all. It doesn't point beyond it, Right? He continues, the sacramental word was openly pronounced by Christ since he directed his discourse to the apostles. Therefore, it was spoken to all believers by the same. For what Christ did to his disciples, he means the same to be done by pastors towards believers. Hence, Paul testified that he had delivered to the Corinthians what he had received from the Lord. Right? So the word of God is necessary for the signs to have their meaning, and if they have no meaning, they are not means of grace to us, right? This is why Paul tells the Corinthians, which we'll look at today, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you guys are eating. It's not a means of grace. You Corinthians may think it's the Lord's Supper. You may call it the Lord's Supper. You can tell others it's the Lord's Supper. You may be eating bread and drinking wine, but it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Wow. Why? It says in verse 29, 
For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. They weren't discerning the body of Christ as they looked to the sign, meaning they weren't by faith considering that the bread merely pointed to the flesh of Christ. They were just eating bread. John Gill explains that by not discerning the body, Paul means that they did not, quote, distinguish it from the bread, the sign or the symbol of it. They were just mindlessly eating. I knew, I knew a professor who would say, you know what happens when, we, when you baptize babies? And all these Baptists were like, horrible things or something, I don't know. <laughs> and he said, they get wet. You know what happens when you give the Lord's Supper to, to an unbeliever? They get fed, not spiritually. And it's not the Lord's Supper, right? You have to distinguish. And what helps us to distinguish is the word which gives the explanation. Therefore, even the word, uh, even, even the sacraments, and everything we do is built upon the word of God. This is why in their controversies with Rome, the reformers, uh, uh, the, the Romanists would say, well, the church, the church only knows how to determine the word, and it kind of rules over the word. Um, it gives a definitive analysis of the word because the church gave birth to the word, right? The apostles of the church wrote, wrote scripture. The reformers would turn around and say, no, the word of God gave birth to the church. And the word of God sustains the church as well, right? You can see why. That's, that's, that's what we come to in the means of grace is the word of God preached, read, listened to, sung, prayed, and even partaken of visibly in the elements, right? Now, any questions before we move on? Okay. Well, let's continue on with paragraph five. <clears throat> Next, it says, all of these parts of religious worship are, quote, to be performed in obedience to him, to God, with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. Now, these four things mentioned here are quite similar to what we saw uh, concerning the manner of prayer in paragraph 3. If you notice there, in paragraph 3, it says we are to pray with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance. Right? In both of these lists, um, understanding, uh, reverence, and faith are, are in both of them, right? I won't go through each one of these four uh, as I did because I more or less already walked through them when we went and looked at prayer. What I would say, though, is just to note again with these four things, they are highlighting once again the reality of the spiritual nature of worship. It, it is to be spiritual in nature, right? If you come to hear the Word of God merely with ears and not with understanding of the heart, you've not heard the Word of God. If you come and partake, as Paul says, without discerning the body, without understanding faith and all those things, you've not, just, you've not partaken of the Lord's Supper. It has to be spiritual in nature by the enabling of the Lord. 
I mentioned earlier uh, Stephen Sharnock's Discourse on Spiritual Worship, which you can find for free online. It's very, very good. Um, But when he gets toward the end of the discourse, after he's described spiritual worship, he goes on to give exhortation on how we are to give spiritual worship. And many of these four things mentioned in paragraph 5, we could say in, in one way or another, all of them implicitly are really mentioned as being necessary for spiritual worship, right? He actually mentions faith first. He doesn't mention understanding at all, really, but given the fact that faith implies understanding, right? You can't believe that which you don't understand. He obviously intends it. Of faith, he says, first, faith must be acted in worship, a confidence in God. As the lack of faith in a person is the death of the soul, so the lack of faith in worship is the death of the offering. That service is not spiritual, which is not vital and lively, and it cannot be vital without the exercise of a vital principle or source. All spiritual life is hid in Christ and drawn from Him by faith. Faith, as it has relation to Christ, makes every act of worship a living act and consequently a spiritual act. So apart from faith, well, first of all, we already know, apart from faith, it's impossible to please God, right? How much more so in worship? You cannot please the Lord in terms uh, of of worship without faith. Um, to, To challenge you here, I would just encourage you, before you come, before you come to worship, Do you come in faith? Do you come expecting to receive from the means of grace? Do you come expecting that your heavenly Father shall one way or another comfort you and encourage you and that you shall partake of Christ and his benefits? Stir up your heart to see if that's how you come. So many times we just come (laughs) with no expectation, right? We're not to come with faith. <clears throat> Next, Sharnock speaks of reverence and godly fear together. He says, spiritual worship is to be performed with a delight in God, yet with a deep reverence of God. <clears throat> the gospel in advancing the spirituality of worship takes off the terror, but not the reverence of God. I like how he says that. The gospel in advancing the spirituality of worship takes off the terror, but not the reverence of God. Not a slavish fear like that of devils, but a godly fear like that of saints. As God is a spirit, our worship must be spiritual. And since he is the supreme spirit, our worship must be reverential. Okay? Now, with, with the time we have left, I want us to consider the last two things that are mentioned in paragraph 5. Uh, it says, um, if you look, Moreover, solemn humiliation, or humbling, the humbling of yourself, with fastings and thanksgiving, thanksgivings upon special occasions ought to be in a, used in a holy and religious manner. Now, we've begun to do this more, especially this last year, right? We've kind of had 
Um, we, well, we have had days of fasting and prayer. Um, we've not yet had a full-on day of thanksgiving, um, but these are included here as, as part of uh, even our public worship. Interestingly, too, we'll look at this, uh, not next week, I'll be gone, but the following week, um, the assembly also wrote a public, di- no, a directory for private worship. It's a directory for family worship, and it's really good, and I want us to go through that. But they even, they even say that, that families ought to have days of thanksgiving and even days of fasting together, right, as they worship and things like that. But I want to read to you from the Directory of Public Worship on, on what it says um, about how these, what this looked like. What does this mean in historical context? Um, when they do it, it's a little bit different from how we do it for various reasons, but I think ours are still legitimate. Um, but let me read what it says. First, concerning fasting, okay, or public solemn fasting. When some great and notable judgments are either inflicted upon a people or apparently imminent, about to come, or by some extraordinary provocations notoriously deserved. Let's say there was a member of the congregation and, you know, they, they got caught in some great sin to, to, the, to the shame of the gospel in that local church or local community, right? As also when some special blessing is to be sought or obtained. That's why we're fasting uh, this Wednesday. We're seeking a special blessing, right, from the Lord, his guidance and his wisdom. <clears throat> Public solemn fasting, which is to continue the whole day, is a duty that God expecteth from that nation or people. Okay, so this is being written um, for the time where Presbyterianism is, well, this is also in Scotland too. It's, it's the nation, the national church as well. Um, but we would still say this applies to us. He says, a religious fast requires total abstinence, not only from all food, unless bodily weakness do manifestly disable from holding out till the fast be ended, in which case somewhat or something may be taken, yet very sparingly, to support nature when ready to faint. I like the way, I think William Perkins or William Ames talks about this. He says, it is lawful in some cases to even eat during a fast, but it's the most plain food that there is, right? Um, Annika, I think, and I have even talked about this. You know, she's nursing, so she can't, like, abstain from food. So maybe she'll eat oatmeal, but, like, and maybe you think this is pedantic, but, you know, in good conscience, we're trying to do this. Um, she'll abstain, like, she won't put sugar in it and all kinds of things. Um, I know for myself, and again, you, maybe you think this is dumb. This is just in my own conscience. If I'm fasting, I don't drink sparkling waters because <laughs> I love sparkling waters. That's like, those are like my, my cigarettes or something, right? I, I wake up in the morning, crack one open, like, oh, it's going to be a good day. Um, I abstain from that. Maybe I just drink normal water or something like that, right? Um, but, but the purpose is it's, it's a solemn humbling of yourself. It's not to be a day of rejoicing, right? Or, or not that you have to like, afflict yourself per se, but just, just whatever is necessary for life. He goes on to say, <clears throat> it also requires total abstinence also from all worldly labors, 
discourses and thoughts and from all bodily delights and such like, although at other times they are lawful, rich apparel, ornaments, and such things during the fast. So even there, it's almost like to some degree when you're fasting, it's kind of like a Lord's Day. Um, You want to put off as much as you can your worldly concerns. Now, we're going to be fasting on Wednesday. We can't take a whole day off, right? That's one historical difference between us and this. These would be national holidays in Scotland in which it was like we are having a fast day. They didn't happen all the time. Um, And so everyone, they would would take off. We we can't do that, right? Um, People still have to work. We can't all come to church on Wednesday, except maybe in the evening. Um, But still, as much as you can, you know, what you do with food, you are to do in other areas of your life. And so there might be ways, if if I'm fasting, where um, I might not, you know, do something simple, like play a dumb game on my phone or something that I might normally do, right? Because you're focusing on the fast and you're humbling yourself. Likewise, during the fast, much more we should abstain from whatever is in the nature or use, uh, whatever is in the nature or use scandalous and offensive, as gaudy attire, lascivious habits and gestures, and other vanities of either sex. We recommend to all ministers in their places diligently and zealously to reprove as at other times, so especially at a fast, without respect of persons, as there shall be occasion. Right, so that's just kind of more of a general thing. Listen to how it takes place, though. Before the public meeting, so there's a public meeting. We actually have, we'll see, there's public sermons on fast days and thanksgivings, as I've mentioned before. We actually have a lot of them. It's really interesting. Before the public meeting, each family and person apart are privately to use all religious care to prepare their hearts to such a solemn work and to be early at the congregation, right? So large a portion of the day, as conveniently may be, is to be spent in public reading and preaching of the word with the singing of psalms, fit to quicken the heart, suitable to such a duty, but especially in prayer to this or like effect. And then it gives an example prayer. Uh, Let's see. Special choices to be made of such scriptures to be read and of such tests for preaching as may best work the heart of the hearers to the special business of the day and most dispose them to humiliation and repentance, insisting most on those particulars which each minister's observation and experience tells him are the most conducing to the edification and reformation of that congregation to which he preacheth. So where, where we could apply this to ourselves is when you're fasting, you apply those scriptures to yourself, which particularly apply to why you're fasting. So for us, this Wednesday, as we seek um, guidance and wisdom and blessing from the Lord, you would go to passages like that and, and remind them remind yourself of them, or even pray them to the Lord, right? Um, I think I've known some people where I, you know, you're teaching them to fast, and I'll say, like, okay, did you read the Word of God? What did you read? And they're like, well, I just did my normal daily thing. I'm like, okay, it's not bad. The Word of God's always good, right? Um, <clears throat> but just as you're fasting for a specific purpose, so also read according to that, right? Um, that was more or less a public fast 
uh, back then, and they were quite frequent. Next, on a public day of thanksgiving, he says, when any such day is to be kept, let notice be given of it, and the occasion thereof, some convenient time before, that the people may better prepare themselves thereunto. Sounds kind of like potluck, right? Let people know beforehand so they know what to, to bring. Um, I don't think they had potluck themes back then, but uh, who knows? Perhaps they did. They're like gruel or not so much gruel. I don't know. That's their theme, but it says, The day being come, and the congregation, after private preparations, notice again, you're preparing your, your heart beforehand, and the congregation being assembled, the minister is to begin with the word of exhortation, stir up the people to the duty for which they are met, and with a short prayer for God's assistance and blessing. Let him then take some pithy narration of the deliverance obtained. <laughs> I think that's so funny. This is the way it says that. Or mercy received, or of whatever hath occasioned that assembling of the congregation, that all may better understand it, or be minded of it, and more affected with it. So, if, if the Lord had just blessed a congregation, maybe with a new minister, um, when he stands up, he is to give the reason why they're giving thanks, right? That, that makes sense, um, so that they, they, they are minded of it as they give. <clears throat> and because the singing of psalms is, of all others, the most proper ordinance for expressing of joy and thanksgiving, let some pertinent psalm or psalms be sung for that purpose before or after the reading of some portion of the word suitable to the present business. Um, singing, not always, as we see in the Psalter, but is often um, associated with joy, right? We're singing with thankfulness to the Lord, it often says in the New Testament. Um, well, how fitting it is then on days where, where we set aside to have a day of thanksgiving that we spend time just praising and thanking God, right? That's what he's saying. Then let the minister who is to preach proceed to further exhortation and prayer before his sermon with special reference to the present work, after which let him preach upon some text of Scripture pertinent to the occasion. The sermon then ended, let him not only pray as at other times after preaching is directed with remembrance of the necessities of the church, the king, and the state, so you're praying just generally, but enlarge himself in due and solemn thanksgiving for former mercies and deliverances, but more especially for that which at present calls them together to give thanks, with humble petition for the continuance and renewing of God's uh, many mercies as need shall be, and for sanctifying grace to make a right use thereof. With that, they would maybe pray and sing a psalm and end. Um, but that was very, very common back then. And there's a lot that, that we need to kind of recover of that, um, not only as churches, but as individuals, and I would say especially as families. Um, when you as a family, maybe you were to buy a new house, right? Have a day that you set aside and say, kids, today, you know what? We are going to spend time thanking the Lord. Um, the dads, take, take a scripture that is pertinent to that of God's God's blessing, even one of exhortation. You know, I, we think of the passage, unless the Lord builds the house, right? It, something like that that's encouraging and sing psalms of thanksgiving. Um, all of that, our confession says, is part of religious worship. 
Um, it's things that are our duty. Um, I would encourage you individually as well. Um, there's, no, <laughs> there's a directory for public worship, a directory for private worship, but there's no directory for secret worship or something, which is what they would have called the individual back then. But once you look at all of them, it's kind of all the things we see in our confession. It's the Word of God, it's prayer, it's not the sacraments, um, and the singing of psalms, right? Consider those things for yourself as you seek the Lord. Um, you may not have a family yet, um, or you may not live with anyone else. These things still apply to you. There may be a time where you have a day of special thanksgiving, or a day of uh, solemn humiliation before the Lord, where you're calling out up upon Him. Um, these things are still for us to do, uh, and they are, they are a great blessing and a great means of grace from the Lord, okay? Well, with that being said, uh, any questions before we're done? No questions? Well, next week, uh, you can pray for me. I'll be in El Paso, and uh, uh, Jason will be teaching on the Psalms, Lord willing. And uh, when we come back, I want us to consider more of uh, private family worship and see if we can grow in our understanding of that, okay? With that, you are just...